This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is more than just another greens product, having been developed over the course of 10 years by doctors and nutritionists, the most complete whole food supplement available with 75 ingredients working together with help with five different areas of health. One scoop is like having 11 supplements in one. It's a great way to ensure you get those micronutrients that we've talked about with Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Also, it tastes really good. doesn't taste like you're licking the floor of a barn. Now, a special deal for my listeners. You can get 20 free travel packs valued at $99 with your first purchase when you go to athleticgreens.com slash manliness. That's athleticgreens.com slash manliness to claim your special offer today. Don't miss this. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you found yourself in a situation with a violent attacker, would you know what to do? While it's easy to think you'd instinctively make the right decision, the truth is, if you haven't been formulating and practicing a plan ahead of time, you'll likely make the wrong and possibly deadly choice. My guest today has spent over two decades teaching people how to deal with threats, even more importantly, how to avoid them in the first place. His name is Dr. Gav Schneider, and he's an expert in personal risk management security and the author of Can I See Your Hands? A Guide to Situational Awareness, Personal Risk Management, Resilience, and Security. Today on the show, Gav shares the biggest mistake people make when it comes to their personal safety and why understanding that criminals have an advantage is found and keeping you and your family safe. He then walks us through how to develop situational awareness so that we can avoid problems before they occur, why it's important to have multiple plans of action for when an attack happens, and why realistic training is crucial in being ready to defend yourself. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash can I see your hands, all one word. And Gav joins me now via clearcast.io. All right. Dr. Gav Schneider, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. So uh, tell us about your background. Uh, you are involved with security training and consulting. This is like bodyguard stuff, executive protection. How did you get involved in this? So I started training martial arts when I was about five years old. The career in martial arts has been awesome. It led me to travel all over the world. And I spent a lot of time as a living student under an Israeli great grandmaster known as Dennis Hanover. I then spent time traveling around in the U.S. and through Thailand and various other places. While I started studying academically, my first qualifications were in marketing and management. I got contracts training bodyguards, police and military back in South Africa, where I'm originally from. Started working as a bodyguard shortly thereafter. Set up my first business providing close protection and training services about two decades ago. And... I've never formally served in the police or military, have, although I've worked with many special units and awesome operators. It's not the common pathway into the security world. So I started focusing on academics and got a master's degree and later on a PhD in criminology focusing on security management. And uh, now I teach a course in a postgraduate course in the psychology of risk. And I'm the CEO of three or four businesses that work across risk, insecurity, safety, emergency response, and overall risk integration. Yeah, that is an interesting background because you know, most people who do what you do, they've had some sort of military or police background, but you went at it from a different angle. Yeah, and it's, it's been, it's been uh, a, great, a great journey for me. And I think you know, I've been very lucky and also you know, sometimes right time, right place for things to happen. But also you know, sometimes it's incidents that aren't so lucky that happen. Uh, you know, when I was, I think I was about 21 years old, um, I was a full, co uh, full contact jiu-jitsu champion in the style I was training, a professional bodyguard, and uh, living in South Africa, which is a very high crime rate environment. Got a phone call one night from my mother who was on the way to hospital after my stepfather had been shot in the head and attempted carjacking. And I rushed to the scene, almost nothing I could do there, rushed to the hospital, almost nothing I could do there. And what, what, the, what the, the worst part about that for me was that, uh, you know, it actually doesn't matter how good professionals get in many cases because the professional is not likely to be there when people need them. And uh, it's, it's steered my career in many ways, but particularly focusing on how do you translate the knowledge and the skills that every person needs so that they have it when they need it. Because, you know, as we said, the specialist or the sheepdog as David Grossman refers to them, is, is not usually going to be there when the bad things come. Right, right. So you wrote this book, uh, Can I See Your Hands, which, which you basically distill or make explicit 
the the skills, the knowledge that you have, and then a lot of operators have, or people who do what you do have. And you were talking, I was talking to you on the show before, I think you did a great job making a lot of these things explicit, because one thing I found, you talk to these guys who were in this field, and like they're super good at what they do. But a lot of the that, that skill they developed, is like, it's almost it's intuition, right? It's like fingertip feel. They don't, if you'd ask them like what exactly you're doing, like they just, they just know, right? Which that's an advantage, right? When you're in that situation. But when you're trying to convey that or pass that information on to say a layman, you have to kind of approach things from a beginner's mindset. And I think you did a good job with this book doing that. So let's talk about from the beginning when in your experience with training individuals and maybe we're talking like just regular citizens here, what is the biggest mistake you see people make when it comes to their personal security? Thanks, Brett. I think there's, it's hard to put your finger on one thing, but if I had to put it down, I think there's two real variants that we see of this. One is absolute ignorance and denial where, you know, people are going, this won't happen to me. Nothing bad will ever happen to me. You know, so I'm I'm never going to bother to prepare for that sort of thing. So they absolutely disempower themselves and actually make themselves an, an easier victim for somebody who would want to do something bad because of that denial. And then the other side of the spectrum that we we do come across a lot is uh, is overconfidence. And you know, when you look at the two, you'd rather be overconfident than underconfident because at least that creates a bit of a deterrent for most would-be attackers. But you know, overconfidence without the ability to follow through can also have its limitations. Gotcha. So that combination of negligence and overconfidence and just uh, just denial that bad things are going to happen. Why, why do you think people deny? Th- is that like just willfully, like they're willfully trying to be ignorant that bad things can happen to them or they just it's unpleasant to think about bad things happening? It's a very good question. I spent a lot of time doing research onto this issue because you know, I'll just give you a few examples that have fascinated me around this you know, decision-making and the psychology of risk over the years. During my bodyguard and touch protection career, you know, you'd see crazy things. We, we, we'd have people phone our office and you know, the conversation would often start, I need, I need a bodyguard. You know, money's not an issue. Um, you know, somebody's trying to kill me. I need help right now. And you know, we had a standard process that when we got those phone calls, we would ask a few questions really to verify as much as we could, but we would never normally send less than four people because if it's a confirmed threat and you don't know what you're facing, you know, at the very least, you need a, a minimum number of people to make sure it's safe for the people you're deploying. And all of a sudden, you know, people who had you know, for two minutes before said money was no object were starting to try and bargain us down to go, oh, can't I just get one or maybe just two at the worst? You know, other experiences in the bodyguard world where you know, people pay for all this protection and then see if they can lose their protection team as some sort of game. And, and you sit there and you just wonder why do people make decisions like that? So it's quite interesting. There's a part of our brain called the reticular activating system that sorts all the information that we bring in through our senses all the time. And it sorts it really on only two things, uh, what we're interested in or what could hurt us. So for the most part, people aren't interested in safety and security because it's not as much fun, for example, as going on holiday. And on the other hand, if people haven't actually been exposed to something, they truly, in many cases, don't believe it will happen to them. So the biggest challenge is is exactly what you said. You know, step one is people just learning that, look, sometimes you could do everything right and you might be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So if you accept that that could happen, you then empower yourself to be able to act on it. The biggest challenge is avoiding the myth of somebody else will take care of these things for me. And in most first world countries, you know, we've been very lucky. I, I now live in Australia spent quite a bit of time in the US. You know, there's competent first responders, there's great law enforcement agencies. But you know, by definition, the first responder is always the person who's on the scene when the incident happens. And you know, it's a two it's a two-way thing. We get so caught up in talking about personal security, but the thing that's likely to kill most of us is probably a heart attack, cancer, or some sort of other illness. And you know, to stay healthy, we know what to do. We just got to exercise, eat right, and visit the doctor regularly. But even that, we often find you know people are just in denial and don't accept that it's their responsibility too. 
Right. Yeah. I imagine the, the idea that something bad happening is so abstract. Just like, you know, dying of cancer, getting diabetes is so abstract. You just don't even think, ah, I'm not going to worry about it until it actually becomes a problem. So let's talk about sort of the mindset shift. So if we realize that bad things can happen to us, and then that also understanding that when that bad thing happens, like an attack on us, typically the police aren't going to be there to help us. Like we're on our own, basically. Like let's talk about understanding the mindset of a criminal and understanding the situation. So you talk about in the book, one important thing to understand is when you are in a personal defense situation, the criminal has the advantage. Uh, Why is that? So it's a critical piece to understand. I think this is something, even people who are really into personal safety, you know, people who train martial artists or go to the shooting range, they often forget the fact that you know, they get attacked on the terms of the attacker. So the, the attacker picks when the situation actually happens. They pick where the situation happens and they pick the manner in which the attack will manifest. You know, those are all variables that are, that are difficult to control. As you saw in the book, we talk about three things. We talk about capability, opportunity, and intent. And we, and we very rarely have the reach to influence people's capability. You know, we somebody can go and buy a gun. Somebody can go and train martial arts. You know, so, even somebody with ill intent who has no skill, you know, can drive their car into you. They just have to wait when they need it. So capability is hard. Intent is equally as hard to to manage for the average person. Although with a lot of experience, you know, you can learn to determine the early warning signs that somebody may actually harm you or may be looking to harm someone else. It does take a lot of work, but the easy one that we can control is this idea of the opportunity. You know, most criminals, even even deviant criminals, will take the path that leads them to the highest likelihood of success. So, you know, why pick a hard target that will see me coming, has created enough space to run away, or has potentially got an improvised weapon at hand to defend themselves when I could pick somebody else who doesn't have any of those things in place? Gotcha. So understanding that, that the criminal has the advantage, you make the case that instead of spending your time or most of your time training or preparing for when you have to fight back, you'd be better served spending more time like just avoiding those situations in the first place. Absolutely. And I think this is an interesting challenge. You know, having taught martial arts for nearly 30 years now, and I've trained thousands of people and had many of them involved in pretty serious incidents to get really good at self-defense is not a quick thing you know despite the fact that people do online training programs or want to go to a one-hour course you know, realistically you have to train enough so that your instinctive response is a response that works and that that, that takes you know thousands of repetitions done perfectly under simulated stress situations, which the average person just won't put the time, effort, and energy into doing, even though it's not that hard and you get the health benefit with it too, and you get the confidence, which means you're less likely to be attacked. So often when I run face-to-face seminars, I ask people how much time they would be willing to give to their personal risk management. And if you look at your personal risk management, you know first and foremost, as we discussed, probably the biggest risks of of getting hurt or killed come from medical issues. So, you know, eating and living healthy is probably the first starting point. That might take, you know, three, four hours of effort a week. You know, staying in shape, running, going to the gym. The, the next step would probably be making sure you could provide a decent level of first aid to people and loved ones around you if something happened based on this medical risk. You know, next, next is probably if people live in a place where they commute, learning how to drive properly. You know, you're more likely to get into a car accident than you are to get assaulted or attacked. But very few people ever go and do you know, regular defensive or advanced driver training. You know, then, then next on the list would be self-defense training. So without trying too hard, you might actually need about 20 hours a month to, to be really on top of your personal risk game. In talking to most people, you know, we've trained thousands and thousands of people. Most people will, at best, give you 20 minutes a week if you're lucky. So, you know, the question comes down to what do you do in that 20 minutes that will give you the best bang for buck? What will give you the most effective chance of minimizing the risks you might be exposed to? You know, and that's situational awareness. It's knowing how to scan your environment, look at who's around you, work out who may be a threat, forecast the probability of that happening, 
plan an action and run it through in your head a few times. So if you actually had to do it, you could. You know, that process, you know, earlier on, you spoke about how it becomes intuitive for experts. It's because they've done it so many times. But learning how to visualize is a great cheat for everyone. You know, the world's best athletes do it. Why shouldn't we? And if you can get good at that, you know, it just makes you a much harder target for people that have never thought about it or never actually look around with what could cause harm. Uh, and so I like how you break it down in the book. You bring in the, was it the Pareto principle, the 80-20, right? So we should be spending you know, basically 80% of our time that we have on learning how to avoid these situations in the first place through situational awareness. And then the remaining 20% would be spent preparing on like how to actually handle that situation if it ever occurred to us, correct? Well, what's interesting is that is it merges, right? Because we, we actually, we, I, I love the term pre-resilience instead of resilience. You know, the idea of resilience is I can bounce back after something bad happens. But the idea of pre-resilience is that the ability to bounce back is formed by all the effort, work, and initiatives I put in ahead of time. So when I look at this idea of where I put my energy, it's not just focusing on you know how, what what do I do when this thing happens? You know, for example, if I'm walking down the street and some guy you know jumps out in front of me, puts a knife at my throat, you know, most of the time it's a compliance process, right? If if he was if he wanted to kill you, he probably would have just killed you. It's about how do you stay calm enough to give him your money. But if you were situationally aware, you would have realized maybe that's not the street to walk down, or when this guy's approaching you, potentially he's a threat, so you move yourself out of the situation. But what gives you the confidence to be able to act under pressure is the physical training. So the biggest benefit of you know, self-defense or martial arts training is that if I, if I get really good at it, I actually probably never have to use it because I'm able to focus on the pieces beforehand. And, and it is a challenge, you know, in, in a world, and don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of mixed martial arts and any sort of combative training, but in a world where we've made combat very sporting, takes that pre-phase out of it. And the pre-phase is where the average person can avoid these things. So absolutely putting your energy into the focusing before something happens, as opposed to responding and recovering, just makes sense. The challenge we've got, as we spoke about before, is that if people are in the stage of ignorance, negligence, or denial, the chances of them doing something proactively are very, very slim. And while, you know, luckily, you know, Bad things won't happen to most people. If you're sitting there without any pre-thought of what would you do, you know, it's the equivalent of never having any insurance for anything, you know, a car, a house, your health. And then when something bad happens, going, oh man, I should have had insurance. So, you know, if we're not even going to invest in our own well-being, how are we going to ensure we have a great life? Yeah, and I think another challenge of why it's hard to do this pre- resilience you talk about like avoiding the situations in the first place and then instead focus on like what do you do when the thing actually happens is like the training for what you do when the event actually happens like it's i mean it's fun let's i mean i, I think we should not <laughs> downplay that like i love i like taking self-defense courses i like doing tactical gun courses where you're running and gunning and it's super fun but I, you make the case like okay it's fun and it's interesting and it's engaging but in order to get really good at that, like you have to do that training a lot. Like, I mean, make a big, big investment. I even realized that after a while, it's like, yeah, I mean, this is fun. I'm doing this. I'm doing pretty good in this sort of simulated situation, but it really isn't like an action. It's not simulating closely like what an actual situation would be like if I were to have to use my firearm. It's a very valid point. And yeah, I'll, I'll loop back to a few things. You know, I've trained in many styles of martial arts and, tactical firearms instructor and I've been in a few situations over over my career and when violence actually manifests it doesn't really manifest the way you you, you practice it in the in a gym or in a dojo even on the shooting range things things happen way differently it's messy it's erratic you get time distortion all those adrenal factors kick into play so one of the goals we have when it comes to practical training the, the goal is to get as close to reality as safely as possible and that's a very difficult thing to do. You know, what's the point of going to learn how to defend yourself if you keep getting hurt during the training? But conversely, if the training never actually puts you under stress and simulates, you know, the, the need to read body language, the need to respond, simulates resistance, multiple attackers, dealing with weaponry, 
if it doesn't have some of those variables in, you develop that false sense of security. And, you know, it's, it's quite an interesting example that if, if you look at a lot of self-defense systems, and this it's something that drives me crazy, most you know, sporting martial arts you know, work on some sort of resistance or, you know, somebody challenging, hitting back, trying to choke you, etc. A lot of self-defense systems, you know, still have this idea that our techniques are so deadly we can't actually practice live, which, which is the, a real cop-out. We find, you know, that the, the, the one or two live situations where you get adrenalized and you force people to respond are often the most important aspect of a short self-defense course because it teaches people how to manage the adrenal response as opposed to apply techniques. And we've had some amazing cases over the years where people have been attacked. They really couldn't do any techniques you know, in the, in the one-hour or one-day self-defense courses, but because psychologically, emotionally, and mentally, they'd made the decision to fight and they saw that trigger point where they had to fight early enough to respond, they, they survived and many of them did quite well. So it, it, it really is a challenge between finding that balance. And it, it's awkward because quite literally being paranoid is worse than not being aware at all. If, if you borrow a little bit from the field of sports psychology, you know, they, they found that you know, athletes who play games such as you know, baseball or in, in more British-type countries like Australia who play cricket, you know, the, the people who are on bat and do really well are usually people who are able to raise and lower their awareness and the challenge we've got is it's estimated we've only got between 30 and 45 minutes of laser-like focus a day. So if I'm paranoid, I chew through that laser-like focus instantly, which means for the rest of the day, I actually have no ability to cognitively function at a very high level and be, and be vigilant. So it's, it's really important that, that that point, you know, people often confuse the idea of being aware, situationally aware, ready and capable with being paranoid, and it's almost the exact opposite. Because I'm aware and situationally aware of what's happening around me, I know when I actually can relax, but I also know when I should potentially be more prepared. So I ration that level of awareness more effectively, and you can have an overall much higher quality of life and much more effective daily engagement. Psychologists talk about being mindful, but it really is more effective when I learn to manage and moderate you know, what I'm doing based on what's happening around me. Well, so let's talk about that. So just so we understand, we're going to spend, you know, understanding that the criminal has the advantage in the situation if we're being attacked. We want to spend most of our time, like 80% of our time, learning how to avoid that situation in the first place because that will give us the most bang for our buck. So let's talk about what we, how we do that. What's the first step of establishing situational awareness in any, like no matter where sure. you go? So we like to talk, in, in the book, I, I try to summarize it as the awareness toolbox, but it, it really starts first and foremost with a little bit of knowledge of your own internal context. And I'll, I'll give you a simple example of that. You know, if I wake up in the morning, I have a bad night's sleep, I might have a bit of a head cold, and on the way into work, I get cut off by somebody and I end up screaming at him. For the rest of the day, I'm probably not going to be that effective at being situationally aware or at making good decisions in totality. So if, if I don't take context of where I am mentally and emotionally, um, I might miss what I should actually be doing. So, you know, people, for example, who work in high-risk environments need to be so attuned to their internal state first. Otherwise, they might expose themselves to risks that normally they could deal with but in you know, a different state might not be able to deal with. And the way we see the world is always governed by how we feel. So if I'm feeling good, I'll look around and I'll actually notice good things, not bad things. If I'm feeling bad, everything I look at is a problem or an issue. So it starts with that internal baseline. Once you have that, you can then try and generate an external baseline. And that external baseline is knowing what's happening around me. And we, we teach a tool called the three-point check system. There are many tools like this, but the history of the three-point check system is an interesting one in that uh, roughly 20 years ago, we set up a bodyguard training school, and we would get sent these guys to train you know, in 10 or 20 days, and many of them you know, were, were not the perfect specimens for the job. You know, they weren't academically capable. Many of them weren't physically capable. 
but we had to train them nonetheless. And the time frame was really short. So we actually went on a research process and we interviewed around about 150 experienced operators, you know, the people you spoke about earlier who do it intuitively and ask them, what is it that you do? What do you look for? How do you look for these things? What tells you that this place is good or this place is bad or that guy's dodgy or he's not? It was a very frustrating research process because many of them just looked at us and said, look, you know, I don't know how I know. I just know. And if you want to be like me, you've got to do this for 20 years. But in the end, we pulled out that basic three-point check system, which is the ability to scan your environment, scan the people there, and come up with a contingency plan. So we simplistically talk about places, people, and plans. And then there's a few subcategories under that. The, the next aspect is if I get good at doing that, I can program my intuition because most assessments and most activities are all done intuitively. Daniel Kahneman, who's a really famous behavioral scientist, likes to divide the mind. He talks about a system one aspect of our mind and a system two. The system two is our, you know, our deep thought, cognitive intellectual decision-making capability, and system one is our reflexive, intuitive capability. And it takes so much energy and effort to engage system two that we almost always default to system one, which is our intuitive decision-making. So the better we program our intuition, the more likely we are to actually not have to do anything because we'll naturally be scanning the environment, naturally be evaluating people there, and naturally be coming up with a plan. But it takes quite a long time to program your intuition to work that way. We also, you know, we, we know we make decisions primarily based on bias and heuristics. So, you know, if I don't like the look of somebody, I might not know why I don't like the look of them. And they may actually not even be a threat at all. So I'm wasting all this energy, you know, being biased, thinking somebody's a threat when they might not be. And I might be missing the actual thing that is a threat because of where I'm focusing. So learning to manage our own biases is really important. We, we like to divide decision making into sort of two categories. You know, I have to make the call right now or I have time to analyze it. If you have to make the call right now, then going with your gut is almost always the right call to make, particularly when it comes to personal safety. There's, there's really only two downsides usually about going with your gut, even if you were wrong. And, and they are usually, you might offend somebody and be rude to them, or you might inconvenience yourself a little bit. Whereas, you know, if you ignore your intuition, you might land up having something really bad happen to you. The flip side of that is obviously if I have more time to evaluate what's going on around me, I'm probably going to make a better decision by actually thinking about it than just reacting on gut instinct. We also leverage off Jeff Cooper's color code system, which is a really useful tool to learn how to raise and lower your awareness based on what's happening around you so that we don't you know, work around in a state that's too paranoid or too stimulated when we don't have to. Also, so that we're not you know, walking around in a state of non-awareness at all when we really should be. You know, a good example is driving a car. You know, most people who drive to and from work will have had an experience where they get in the car and don't remember the journey home at all. And uh, you know, that's a pretty risky thing, bearing in mind you're driving or operating you know, a tool that could kill you and kill other people. We should at the very least have some level of basic awareness. Instead, you, know, you don't have to drive around like you're paranoid all the time, but being cognizant of where you are is pretty important. So these things do become life skills once you embed them. All right. So yeah, there's a lot to break down there. Let's talk about sort of some specifics. Like when you, like this places people plan, let's talk about the place. Like what sort of things should just regular people be looking for in their environment when they go to a restaurant, the grocery store, wherever to be, you know, be better situationally aware? Sure. So, so the starting point is just to make sure you know the entrances, exits, escape routes, and hiding places. And it's one of those questions I often ask people just to ask themselves, you know, a very simple question. If you go to a shopping mall op often, do you know where the fire escapes are? And it, it's quite shocking that you know, people will go to a place hundreds of times, but they, go, they park in the same place, they go in the same entrance, and they leave at the same entrance, and they've never thought about other ways of getting out if something went wrong. So the most basic things of knowing how to get in and how to get out is where we start, but it also enables us to know where other people would get in, get in or get out from, where other people might be hiding to hurt me or where I should hide if something went wrong. And you know, it, it just takes a little bit of practice, not much, to get good at that aspect. And just knowing where to run to 
it could be the most important thing if something bad happened. The, the next stage is actually being able to understand structurally what's around you. You don't, you don't necessarily have to have a you know, blueprint map of every building you go to, but just the ability to be able to tell, hold on, this is a five-story building and I'm, I'm on floor five. So if I hit the staircase, you know, I better run until I, get, uh, until I get to the ground, but it's, fi- it's five, stairs, five staircases. You know, it often becomes an argument of, you know, I really thought the penthouse was a good idea, but if I've got to run down all these stairs, maybe it's not if something happens. The other challenge is, you know, if we were looking for something out of the ordinary, it's really hard to tell if something's out of the ordinary if I don't know what the ordinary is. So if I'm looking for an object that looks out of place, it's important to know what is in place. You know, airports are a great example of that. You know, at airports, they always going, make sure that, you know, you don't leave your baggage unattended. Yet, I, I I'm sure you travel a lot, Brett. I do too. And I'd, I'd probably say almost every trip I'm at an airport, I see baggage unattended. And it's just one of those things that we fall into normalization when actually we should be noting these anomalies. And in the last part of scanning the environment, we, we talk about improvised weapons or defensive tools. What in my environment would somebody potentially use to hurt me? Or what, if I had to in my environment, could I use to protect myself in a worst-case scenario? And I, I know when you run through this environmental scan, it seems long. But in reality, most people do this anyway. You know, if I, need, if I want to cross the road safely, I'll actually do a scan like this anyway. You know, I look at what's coming, I scan the environment, and I make a decision. And once we've built a reflexive capability, environmental threat is often much easier to manage than the next level, which is when we integrate people-based threat into it. Because with the exception of natural disasters or a total unforeseen event like a building collapse, environmental threats are often slow to manifest. I'll give an example. Say you walk into a building and you need to go to a meeting on floor three and you look at the elevator and you're going, "If if I get in there, I probably will die. It doesn't look like that elevator's ever been serviced. Most people would just logically take the stairs instead of rolling the dice and taking the elevator. You know, if you walk into a restaurant and you sit down at a table and you sit on the chair and the chair feels very rickety and you think you're going to fall on the floor, most people would just swap chairs. So those, those slow-acting environmental risks are easy if we are aware of them. It's usually the combination of people and place that pose the challenge. And this is the interesting part. One of the things that drives me crazy is where, you know, you have a, a serious incident, whatever the incident was, and after the incident, everybody you know, becomes either masters of hindsight where they're going, oh, yeah, 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 we knew there was something weird about this guy. Or people will go, yeah, I knew this guy for ages and you know, he seemed totally normal. And we, we've kind of built this false sense of reality where we, we don't think that potentially violent or dangerous behavior is something we can tell in advance, which, which is just a, a real inaccuracy. You know, We can predict likely outcomes of the way people behave quite easily what we don't do is take the effort and energy to evaluate people around us regularly enough to actually assess whether they're displaying any of these characteristics. And, and what's interesting with this is, you know, somebody who is paying you undue attention might be dressed in a way that they're concealing a weapon, is behaving erratically and following you while you walk to your car. You know, we can all say, yeah, that's pretty, pretty dodgy, pretty threatening. But if we're not looking for it, we won't even see it. You know, if we don't even accept that this stuff might happen to me, I'm going to miss all of those cues. You know, even you know these the, the terrible cases of these kids that land up, you know, conducting shootings at schools. There's many indicators, and a lot of those indicators, you know, are the early warning signs of disassociation. You know, people feel isolated or they feel alienated. They're just behaving differently from the rest, and it's those differences that trigger the need to look deeper. So it doesn't actually mean that this person is an attacker or they're dodgy. Maybe that person just needs a hug or someone to talk to. But if we don't actually learn to spot these anomalies, we, we, we can never actually act proactively and focus our energy before. And it's a pretty convenient excuse. It kind of covers off everybody who didn't do what they should have when we go, oh, there's no way we could see that coming. You know, there's nothing we could have done anyway. Which, which, as I said, for me, I think is just an excuse. I reckon the vast majority of situations, we can do something. We can see the early warning signs. We just don't look for them or know what to do when we see them. Sure, there are you know, the very limited number of situations that you know, just instantly manifest, but that's really small. And then the last part of the situational awareness piece is just this ability to come up with a plan. 
And you know, this is, we often find this is where most organizations fall really short. They come up with these really complicated plans of what they want their people to do that'll never work. We use the acronym in our corporate consulting business, CYA, cover your ass. <laughs> and uh, we, find, we find most organizations focus on CYA instead of actually empowering their people to be safe in and out of the workplace, to be safe online and physically. And a lot of that becomes, you know, how do we actually practically apply the skills as opposed to how good do they look when we put it down on paper? We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Jeremy here, producer for the AOM podcast. Support for today's show comes in part from Starbucks Double Shot, a chilled coffee energy drink that gives you the gusto to go from point A to point done. As a husband, dad to two young kids, and podcast producer, I have a lot of hats to wear, and I need a lot of energy to not just survive my day, but be fully present and fully effective. Even though it's September, the hot days aren't fully gone yet, and I don't always want a hot coffee for that afternoon pick-me-up. Enter the Starbucks Double Shot. Starts with a bold Starbucks coffee and is blended with milk for a smooth, creamy, refreshing flavor. It's then enhanced with ginseng, guarana, and B vitamins to give you that little extra oomph. Starbucks Double Shot comes in six delicious flavors, mocha, vanilla, hazelnut, white chocolate, coffee, and Mexican mocha, my personal favorite being the coffee. Starbucks Double Shot. It's energy to do things you actually do. Find it in your local convenience store. Thank you, Jeremy. This episode is also brought to you in part by Saks Underwear. Ever wonder what makes an awesome pair of underwear? Comfort is obviously important, the way the fabric makes you feel, but support plays a huge part too in how you feel throughout the day. Saks Underwear is Combine these two components unlike ever before, created what may be the most comfortable pair of underwear in the world. First, Saks is designed differently. They got the patented ballpark pouch, which has these internal mesh panels that keep everything down there in place. No more chafing, sticking, having to adjust yourself. It's fantastic. Saks is also made with super soft, moisture wicking fabrics that keeps you cool and repels body odor. Fantastic. I like the uh, kinetic boxer brief. Great for working out. They've also got some new stuff. They also have whitey tidy versions, briefs. That's your thing as well. If you want to try Saks Underwear 2, I've arranged a great limited time deal for you. You can get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase when you use my promo code AOM at checkout. Order a few pairs at Saks now and get this offer at saxxunderwear.com and use promo code AOM at checkout to get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. Again, saxunderwear.com, promo code AOM. And now back to the show. And so what is this uh, planning process look like? Does it take a lot of time, or is this something you can you can walk into a building, you scan your environment, you scan the people, and then you can just quickly come up with a plan based on that information you have there? You're exactly right. Because the problem is, if you can't do that, and you're the first responder, you know it actually doesn't help that somebody else has built this detailed plan that you might have never seen or can't be explained to you quickly. And this this comes back to that idea of personal power. You know, if, if, if I've owned the fact that my safety is my business, I should make it my, my priority to have a plan if something happened. And, and, you know, there's so many examples of this, but just think about something simple. You know, in the middle of the night, what happens if one of your loved ones needs to go to the hospital? So most people go, oh, we'll call the ambulance. But for whatever reason, what happens if, you know, the ambulance is not going to get you in time and you want to jump into your car and drive this person there? Proactive practices like just making sure you've got a little bit of fuel in the car, as opposed to you know, le- pop, you know, leaving it overnight with, yeah, you know, just the reserve tank light flashing and no no ability to drive, thinking you'll fill it up in the morning, disempowers you. So it's it's quite a simple way to actually think about it. That if you just think about what are the what are the basic responses I might need to do if something bad happened, and we like to use you know the run hard fight communicate model. There, there are lots of variations, but I, I like the, that approach because it aligns back to our adrenal response. And our adrenal response really, under stress, we'll have three instinctive responses. We would fight, flight, or, or freeze. And you know, fighting aligns to fighting, freezing aligns to hiding, okay? and flighting responds to running. So it's a good map. But because in the modern era, you know, most most of the time, our first response happens with some level of communication. We've got to have this communication ability built in. And communication works at various levels, but the first level is, you know, there's nothing more powerful than the voice in your own head. So if you can't even articulate a plan to yourself in your mind, the, the likelihood of you being able to actually carry it out under stress is very slim. So that's why this planning ahead is so important. But, you know, calling the authorities, sharing information with the authorities, warning people around you. Those are things that save lives, but equally so, you know, if I, if, if I couldn't get away and I saw this attacker coming at me and I decided my only choice is to fight, 
you know, me warning the attacker, you know, loudly telling them, no, get back, stop, can actually make a massive difference in the aftermath of the situation legally. Okay, and it also tells other people around you that you're, you're a victim, you're not the attacker. So understanding this run, hard, fight, communicate model, we, we make these things complicated. They're not. You know, that's just tied back to our instinctive response. The, the challenge we've got, though, is if we look at a societal level, most of us, roughly 98% of the population, are flight dominant. That when something bad happens, our instincts tell us run first. We'll only fight if we are absolutely cornered. It's, it's that reason why is, is why it's so hard to train soldiers or even train law enforcement officers or security personnel to run to a problem as opposed to run away because we have to actually train them to overcome that flight response. The exception to that 98% are usually people that exhibit sociopathic or psychopathic tendencies. doesn't mean they always become criminals. You know, it's been found that many people that sit in that 2% are the people who become special forces soldiers or you know, half-flying corporate CEOs. But the, the, the real challenge for the everyday person is to try and make sure that they can fight, flight, and if, or, or freeze, or run hard or fight, and try and make sure they can avoid the number one challenge, which is to panic, because panic is a killer. You know, if I panic, I'm not th- I can't think and I can't act. And that's why this planning process, as you said, it doesn't have to be a big deal. If I walk into a building, all I need to do is have a look and go, right, there's the fire escape. Awesome. If something bad happens, I know where to run. If I'm looking at a guy and I go, this guy really looks dodgy. My plan can be as simple as if he gets up and he comes close to me, I'm just going to leave. And because I know where the exit is, it's much easier to leave. And if you mentally role play that just once or twice in your head, all the research has shown you're far more likely to respond that way, the way you've just visualized, than you are to respond randomly because of association. So we can get a lot of bang for buck just by actually leveraging basic awareness around us and just having a little bit of a plan that we role play in our heads a few times. Right. I think you also talk about this goes back to the OODA loop. You talked about this in the book. We've written about it on the the website pretty in depth. For those who don't know, the OODA loop is observe, orient, decide, act. And in a self-defense situation, the attacker, like his OODA loop is like already going before yours is going. Right. But by having a plan, you kind of speed up your own OODA loop in a way because you, you've oriented, you've decided like what you're going to do in a certain situation. So you're able to act and respond much more quickly. And if you can do that faster, you're more likely to come out the victor in the situation. Exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting. So during our career, we've done lots of interesting things. And one of them was that we actually got to rob a bank. And yeah, this was a bank in South Africa that had that we were developing an armed robbery management program for, uh, bullet-resistant glass, you know, armed security, five-minute tactical response. We had 30 people who participated in the exercise as volunteers, obviously, and we only had one chance to do it right because we were breaking the bullet-resistant glass, which was pretty expensive. The bank said, you only got one chance to do it. I'll ask you the question, Brett, how long do you think it took us to rob the bank? to overcome all of those barriers and successfully pull the robbery off. Let me say two minutes. <laughs> Pretty close. I hope you've never been a bank robber. Um, <laughs> I think like I, one. It, it took one minute 23. Wow. Which we reckon we could have shaved a bunch of time off that. We, we've also spent tons and tons of time training people on how to manage carjackings. So with the context of the bank robbery, how long do you reckon it, t- it takes to, do, to pull off a carjacking? Um, it's like 30 seconds. So we've averaged that out at about 8 to 12 seconds. Wow. The, the last piece of thinking about that is, imagine somebody standing in front of you being verbally aggressive. And, you, and you, know, you can see this guy posturing up. How long does it take from that person to go verbal, from verbal to physical and strike you? Like one second. Yeah, realistically, between 0.3 and 0.6 of a second if they're in touching distance. Wow. So the biggest problem we've got is this fallacy that we actually will have enough time to evaluate what's happening around us, and decide on a response when something actually happens. The truth is we won't. And this is where that performance ahead of time is so important. If we haven't thought about this stuff beforehand, the way we respond is random. Now, we might be lucky and our random response might be effective. 
But what happens if it's not? What happens if it's a panic response? What happens if it's a flight response and I run and I run the wrong way? You know, conversely, what happens if it's a fight response that could have been avoidable? You know, having taught thousands of young men over the years, you know, most young men get into fights or get engage in violence because of ego, not because they have to. And the best way to manage that is to get people to understand ahead of time what the difference is between having to fight for survival, which you know is because you have no other choice and you've tried to avoid every other possible recourse, and you know throwing a punch because this guy looked at you funny and you felt cornered. You know, one might save your life, the other might land you up in jail. So this ability to actually understand the way things manifest is so important so that we can be realistic about the way we visualize our responses. And it's a really hard thing to do because you know, let's take an active shooter situation. In hindsight and after situations, it, it blows my mind, and I'm sure you've experienced this with many of the people you've interviewed and what you look at. Everyone's an expert, right? You know, oh, why didn't somebody take this guy out? You could have tackled him. You could have thrown a chair at him. You could have done this. You could have done that. But when these things actually manifest, it's exceptionally difficult if we haven't prepared. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the case of Andres Brevik. Andres Brevik was the guy who shot all those kids in Norway. Right. Yeah, I remember that. And he he, he actually claimed that it was so much easier. He, tra- he, he trained using first-person shooter TV games. Which, which came out in his inquiry. And he said it was so much easier when he was shooting the kids because most of them froze and, and they were just standing dead still so it was easy for him to shoot them. Or, oh, sorry, and nobody was shooting back at him. And when he was playing his TV games, you know, people were shooting back and running him. So you know, just a little bit of pre-thought around what's real and what's not. And, and this is a hard thing to do. You know, people don't like to think about worst-case scenarios. And this is always the challenge, you know, when I, in terms of writing the book and trying to put some of the stuff down, we've probably trained about 50,000 people in at least one of our face-to-face versions of some of the stuff that's covered in the book. The challenge you've got is, you know, this stuff is actually a practical skill. It's not a theoretical subject. It's about doing the things and it's about practicing them until they become repetitive and just become naturally ingrained in the way you live. And when you get to that level, this is easy. They just become intuitive, you know. Much like looking left and right or right and left depends which country you're in before you cross the road. And th- that's where we want to get to. But we need to get there from a response capability first. You know, we need to look at what actually will work as opposed to what is perceived. And uh, may- maybe you've seen this in the years you've spoken to many experts. You know, there- there's so many experts out there who can do stuff that laymen can't. You know, so somebody who's a master in whatever martial art you want to talk about. You know, can actually pull off stuff the average person can't. Therefore, they think that that's effective. And for them, it might be. You know, a good example, uh, I trained Taekwondo for many years when I was young in my career, and Taekwondo is a kicking system. And you know, lots of self-defense experts go kicking in, you know, high kicking in the street or self-defense is a bad idea. It is a bad idea, but if you're an expert in it, you probably can kick somebody in the head faster than they can punch you in the face. But to get to that level of mastery takes so long that the average person would never never have benefit. So the actual system itself is pretty bad for self-defense because the average punter can't use it. And and you know, not to pick on that, the same is relevant for many other systems. You know, mixed martial arts, which is great, a great close to reality example of the way fights manifest, is it, awesome. But the the things that enable smaller people to beat bigger people are all the things that have been made illegal. Uh, the only way you can stop a bigger, stronger person is, you know, trying to poke them in the eyes, trying to hit them in the groin, you know, breaking small joints like their fingers, trying to hit in the throat, trying to grab a weapon, trying to run away, and all of those things are illegal and things you can't do in mixed martial arts. So the more you train with the limitations, often the le- the less effective you are in the real world, which is a, a difficult conundrum to overcome. So I think that's a good uh, good point you just raised, the difference between sport fighting and fighting for your life. When you're fighting for your life, there are no rules. But unfortunately, people, because like most people are good people, right? They, they grew up and thinking about, you know, you got to have a fair fight or they, they're thinking about the legal consequences afterwards. Like they, they do, they, they just basically, they fight like they're in a boxing match or an MMA, but when they should be, if it's for their life, like gouging eyeballs, punching throats, et cetera. 
it's really challenging because you know that as, as mentioned before there's only two reason in two reasons in life people will ever resort to violent behavior and you know i have this debate often with criminologist colleagues of mine who love to overcomplicate the world we live in but the reality is people either fight for ego or for survival and you know even if you look at you know, serial killer behavior, most of those actions are based on ego. You know, they're based on fulfilling a need that that person perceives is real. Whereas in reality, you know, if it's a survival-based situation, which comparatively would be very, very rare. You know, if you were aware, you were vigilant, you knew where you know, things could go wrong, you could avoid it. We, we were unlikely to get caught up in a bad situation. But conversely, if we go into a situation that is a survival situation with the limitations that, you know, people are good people, I couldn't hurt somebody, I don't want to hurt somebody, well, the chance of you coming out okay are pretty slim because your attacker doesn't have those limitations. And it, it is an awkward discussion. I'll, I'll just limit, go back to, we teach a lot of female self-empowerment and female self-defense. And I find women who come on us, women and girls who come on our self-defense programs, often are really in one of two categories. They're either really underconfident, where they go, "Look, what could I do against a bigger, stronger guy anyway?" You know, so I don't even know why I'm here because there's nothing I could do anyway. Or on the other end of the spectrum, we sometimes get girls and ladies who have grown up with brothers, really cocky, and go, "Oh, I'm not even worried about this. I just kick him in the balls," you know, forgetting the fact that you know most. Men have learned how to protect our groin since the age of three when we realize it really hurts when you get hit in the nuts. Um, so it's about finding that balance because neither of those is, is accurate as we discussed. It's about finding the balance between both. But it's also about exposing people to, in a slower measured way, to the very things they're most scared of. So people who are scared of violence and believe it will never happen to them have no ability to respond if God forbid it does happen. People who slowly acclimatize themselves over time yeah, have a much better chance of being able to manage it. And that's a process. And it's really important to find good coaches and good trainers if you want to go through that. One of the, one of the worst things we find people can do is you know, go and do a self-defense training program, for example, or you know, we, we, we often have a lot of ladies who come and train and go, oh, yeah, I do boxercise or I do tabo. I'm ready to defend myself. We're going, well, that's great that you're fit, that you know, being fit and healthy and strong is, is, is excellent to manage our first risk, which is health. And, you know, we'll make it easy for you to defend yourself, but your context is all wrong. If we haven't thought about the way people might actually attack us, we, we, we've got no ability to apply the skills we have. So it, it's a bit of a challenge. But the one thing I always urge people is no instructor, no book, no manual can ever tell a person when or when not to fight. It's really a personal decision. And the challenge we've got is referencing back to how quickly violence can manifest. If you haven't thought about it ahead of time, you're unlikely to make the best possible decision when something actually happens. You know, our cognitive function shuts down and we respond with reflexive, instinctive response only. So if I want to make the right call, I really do have to base it on you know, thinking about this and programming a response in through visualization or rehearsal ahead of time. I hope that makes sense. No, that makes sense. So, I mean, like how, so like, how does that work? Okay, so like, so going back to this idea that 80%, 80 of the time we should spend avoiding the situation. So we can do that with situational awareness. If you see something like doesn't look right, we get out of there because even if we're wrong, you know, at least we're alive, we're safe. But how do you decide how to respond with either run, hide, fight when like the the event actually happens, right? You couldn't avoid it. The event actually happens. So like, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say, like, how do you like, is there like proximities? So it's like, if the guy is this close or this far away, I'm going to run away. But if he's within this perimeter of me, I'm going to attack because that's the only option I have. Is that, does that make sense? What I'm trying to ask? Absolutely. And you're talking about what we refer to as the pre-phase. So just before the situation happens, and I view this aspect as part of that 80% we discussed before. You know, everything that happens pre the incident actually kicking off is our pre-work. And that's where that 80% should focus on. So this is the challenge. It's all, it's all about context. So we fear most what we don't understand. If I've never been exposed to somebody closing range and you know, demonstrating even verbal aggression, chances are I'm either going to 
respond with a flight, flight or freeze response, right? I might just absolutely freeze and not know what to do. I might engage back very verbally aggressively, or I might just try and run. And the challenge is around trying to map the right response to the scenarios we face. And that this is this is where realistic training experience, you know, done repetitively is by far the most effective way to cover that gap you discussed. Because if I don't know at what point somebody can actually step to strike me, how do I know when I should be backing away? You know, if I don't know how quickly somebody can cover distance when they're across the room, you know, I, I might spend a lot of time being paranoid and missing out on lots of opportunities based on inaccurate perceptions when actually there's no risk, no exposure, people or even people who are threatening were too far away. So part of the challenge with this one is I always urge people, even if you don't want to be a serious martial artist, spend a few months at a self-defense school. It's a life skill. That will teach you how to read distance. It will teach you when people can hurt you from where. And, and then you've at least got context. So for the rest of your life, even if you never go back and train again, you realize that, look, if I can keep a meter and a half of safe separation and I can see this person's hands, okay, and they're not exhibiting you know, signs and symptoms of adrenal, uh, adrenal, uh, adrenal dump, then chances are I'm okay. But if these things change, then I need to act on it. And the biggest problem is we miss these cues because, A, we've never been taught to look for them. And it, it drives me crazy. I think this sort of training should be a life skill that should get taught to every child. You know, there, there were programs that I was involved in in Israel where every school kid you know, received four, four, four two-hour training sessions just as part of their school curriculum to understand how to respond. You know, we spend so much time trying to develop our kids' skills, we're, we're missing teaching them the life skills that you know, could, keep, could, could make them healthier, safer, more productive adults. But you know, on, on that piece, the big challenge is what do we do when it comes time to make a decision? The reality is it's hard to make a decision under adrenal dump. So the more work I put in ahead of time, the more likely I am to make the right decision. And the right decision is different for every single person. You know, if I'm the average everyday person, it's a, it's a comparatively simple measure in theory. You know, I would like to make sure that I come out of every possible bad situation with everything I went into it with. If I'm a first responder, sheepdog, law enforcement, security, or military person, I have to run to trouble. So my context of you know how I come out of it, how I deal with it is quite different, and it is a different discussion. But if we're looking at the everyday person, you know, how, how do we measure success? And it, it blows my mind often talking to young guys who get into fist fights. You know, and, and one of the guys will step up and he'll go, oh, I won that fight. Man, did you see what happened? You know, you know I beat this guy down and all I got is a black eye. You kind of look at them and I often when I have these discussions with them, I say, well, just tell me what, what, what were the, the aspects that led up to that situation? And they'll normally tell you a story of, you know, he said something or I said something or he looked at me or I looked at him. You know, he swore at me, I swore at him. And, you know, then it looked like he was going to throw a punch or he did throw a punch. So I, I fought back. And, you know, there's this trail of incidents. And when you trail it back down, it usually was, you know, there was an ego-based reason and he missed the opportunity to avoid it, which means if if he could have, he, he wouldn't even have had a, had a black eye in the first place. So actually, that's a loss if you really think about it because he came out of the situation worse off than if he had avoided it. Easy to say, particularly when ego comes into play and social pressures are it's something that's tough on young men. You know, there is an expectation in certain circles that you know, you'll defend your honor and backing away from a fight's not a good idea. But you know, if you look at the consequences of getting it wrong, you know, avoidance is by far the best strategy. Well, Gav, this has been a great conversation. Is there someplace else where people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Yes, yeah, thanks. Um, so my, my, my book, Can I See Hands, is available on Amazon or through the publishers, Universal Publishers. We also have an online training academy. academy. If you just go to www.r2s.academy. We've got various online training programs that are aligned to the book. The shortest one is 30 minutes, which you can do in five-minute blocks. You can do them on yourself. You can do them on your cell phone. You can do them anywhere. And you know, we do run face-to-face -face seminars and programs all over the world. But from from our perspective, I think we've got a lot of work to do. The the way the the way threats manifest in a complex world now are so different to the way they used to be. And the old model of you know, sheepdogs keeping us safe 
it's just not practicable the way it used to be, you know, with cybercrime and online crime and, you know, alienated people who resort to violence because they feel they have no other choice that, you know, I, I really do feel very strongly that you know, our goal is to try and get the average person who may have viewed themselves as a sheep before, uh, in other words, you know, security and personal safety is not my problem, to just get the basic knowledge they need to go in a worst case scenario, I know what to do. So you know, from our side, Brett, thank you very much for the opportunity to the people who are listening or the people who've read our books or do our programs. Thank you very much for stepping up and being part of the solution as opposed to being a passive stander, standby victim waiting for something to happen. Well, Gav, thanks for coming on. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, Brett. Much appreciated. My guest today was Dr. Gav Schneider. He's the author of the book, Can I See Your Hands? It's available on amazon.com. And you can also go to r2s.academy where you can see Gav's courses that he have on personal risk management and safety. And he gave you a free month membership if you use code AOM at checkout. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash can I see your hands where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who'd think of something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.